Chapter 5 of The Old Curiosity Shop This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens Chapter 5 Whether Mr. Quilp took any sleep by snatches of a few winks at a time, or whether he sat with his eyes wide open all night long, certain it is that he kept his cigar alight, and kindled every fresh one from the ashes of that which was nearly consumed, without requiring the assistance of a candle. Nor did the striking of the clocks, hour after hour, appear to inspire him with any sense of drowsiness or any natural desire to go to rest, but rather to increase his wakefulness, which he showed, at every such indication of the progress of the night, by a suppressed cackling in his throat, and a motion of his shoulders, like one who laughs heartily, but at the same time slyly and by stealth. At length the day broke, and poor Mrs. Quilp, shivering with cold of early morning and harassed by fatigue and want of sleep, was discovered sitting patiently on her chair, raising her eyes at intervals in mute appeal to the compassion and clemency of her lord, and gently reminding him by an occasion cough that she was still unpardoned, and that her penance had been of long duration. But her dwarfish spouse still smoked his cigar and drank his rum without heeding her. And it was not until the sun had some time risen, and the activity and noise of city day were rife in the street, that he deigned to recognize her presence by any word or sign. He might not have done so even then, but for certain impatient tapping at the door he seemed to denote that some pretty hard knuckles were actively engaged upon the other side. "'Why, dear me,' he said, looking round with a malicious grin, "'tis day. Open the door, sweet Mrs. Quilp.' His obedient wife withdrew the bolt, and her lady mother entered. Now Mrs. Ginnywin bounced into the room with great impetuosity, for, supposing her son-in-law to be still abed, she had come to relieve her feelings by pronouncing a strong opinion upon his general conduct and character. Seeing that he was up and dressed, and that the room appeared to have been occupied ever since she quitted it on the previous evening, she stopped short, in some embarrassment. Nothing escaped the hawk's eye of the ugly little man, who, perfectly understanding what passed in the old lady's mind, turned uglier still in the fullness of his satisfaction, and bade her good morning with a leer of triumph. "'Why, Betsy,' said the old woman, "'you haven't been—you don't mean to say you've been a—' "'Sitting up all night?' said Quilp, supplying the conclusion of the sentence. "'Yes, she has.' "'All night?' cried Mrs. Ginnywin. "'Aye, all night. Is the dear old lady deaf?' said Quilp, with a smile of which a frown was part. "'Who says man and wife are bad company? Ha-ha, the time has flown. "'You are a brute!' exclaimed Mrs. Ginnywin. "'Come, come,' said Quilp, willfully misunderstanding her. "'Of course, you mustn't call her names. She's married now, you know. And though she did beguile the time and keep me from my bed, you must not be so tenderly careful of me as to be out of humour with her. Bless you for a dear old lady. Here's to your health.' "'I am much obliged to you,' returned the old woman." testifying by a certain restlessness in her hands a vehement desire to shake her matronly fist at her son-in-law. "'Oh, I am very much obliged to you.' "'Grateful soul,' 
cried the dwarf. Mrs. Quilp. Yes, Quilp, said the timid sufferer. Help your mother to get breakfast, Mrs. Quilp. I am going to the wharf this morning. The earlier the better, so be quick. Mrs. Ginniwin made a faint demonstration of rebellion by sitting down in a chair near the door, and folding her arms as if in a resolute determination to do nothing. But a few whispered words from her daughter, and a kind inquiry from her son-in-law, whether she felt faint, with a hint that there was abundance of cold water in the next apartment, rooted these symptoms effectually, and she applied herself to the prescribed preparations with sullen diligence. While they were in progress, Mr. Quilp withdrew to the adjoining room, and turning back his coat-collar, proceeded to smear his countenance with a damp towel of very unwholesome appearance, which made his complexion rather more cloudy than it was before. But, while he was thus engaged, his caution and inquisitiveness did not forsake him, for with a face as sharp and cunning as ever, he often stopped, even in his short process, and stood listening for any conversation in the next room, of which he might be the theme. Ah, he said after a short effort of attention, it was not the towel over my ears, I thought it wasn't. I am a little hunchy villain and a monster, am I, Mrs. Ginnywin? Oh, the pleasure of this discovery called up the old dog-like smile in full force. When he had quite done with it, he shook himself in a very dog-like manner, and rejoined the ladies. Mr. Quilp now walked to front of a looking-glass, and was standing there putting on his neckerchief, when Mrs. Ginnywin, happening to be behind him, could not resist the inclination she felt to shake her fist at her tyrant son-in-law. It was the gesture of an instant, but as she did so and accompanied the action with a menacing look, she met his eye in the glass, catching her in the very act. The same glance at the mirror conveyed to her the reflection of a horribly grotesque and distorted face with the tongue lolling out. And the next instant the dwarf, turning about with a perfectly bland and placid look, inquired in a tone of great affection, "'How are you now, my dear old darling?' Slight and ridiculous as the incident was, it made him appear such a little fiend, and withal such a keen and knowing one, that the old woman felt too much afraid of him to utter a single word, and suffered herself to be led with extraordinary politeness to the breakfast-table. Here he by no means diminished the impression he had just produced, for he ate hard eggs, shell and all, devoured gigantic prawns with the heads and tails on, chewed tobacco and watercresses at the same time, and with extraordinary greediness, drank boiling tea without winking, bit his fork and spoon till they bent again, and in short performed so many horrifying and uncommon acts that the women were nearly frightened out of their wits, and began to doubt if he were really a human creature. At last, having gone through these proceedings and many others which were equally a part of his system, Mr. Quilp left them, reduced to a very obedient and humbled state and betook himself to the riverside, where he took boat for the wharf on which he had bestowed his name. It was flood-tide when Daniel Quilp sat himself down in the ferry to cross to the opposite shore. A fleet of barges were coming lazily on, some sideways, some head-first, some stern-first, all in a wrong-headed, dogged, obstinate way, bumping up against the larger craft, running under the bows of steamboats, getting into every kind of nook and corner, where they had no business, and being crunched on all sides like so many walnut shells, 
while each with its pair of long sweeps struggling and splashing in the water looked like some lumbering fish in pain. In some of the vessels at anchor all hands were busily engaged in coiling ropes, spreading out sails to dry, taking in or discharging their cargoes. In others no life was visible but two or three tarry boys, and perhaps a barking dog, running to and fro upon the deck, or scrambling up to look over the side and bark the louder for the view. Coming slowly on through the forests of masts was a great steamship, beating the water in short impatient strokes with her heavy paddles, as though she wanted room to breathe, and advancing in her huge bulk like a sea-monster among the minnows of the Thames. On either hand were long black tires of colliers. Between them, vessels slowly working out of harbour with sails glistening in the sun, and creaking noise on board, re-echoed from a hundred quarters. The water and all upon it was in active motion, dancing and buoyant and bubbling up, while the old grey tower and piles of building on the shore, with many a church spire shooting up between, looked coldly on, and seemed to disdain their chafing, restless neighbour. Daniel Quilp, who was not much affected by a bright morning save in so far as it spared him the trouble of carrying an umbrella, caused himself to be put ashore hard by the wharf, and proceeded thither through a narrow lane, which, partaking of the amphibious character of its frequenters, had as much water as mud in its composition, and a very liberal supply of both. Arrived at his destination, the first object that presented itself to his view was a pair of very imperfectly shod feet, elevated in the air with the soles upwards, which remarkable appearance was referable to the boy, who, being of an eccentric spirit, and having a natural taste for tumbling, was now standing on his head and contemplating the aspect of the river under these uncommon circumstances. He was speedily brought on his heels by the sound of his master's voice, and as soon as his head was in its right position, Mr. Quilp, to speak expressively in the absence of a better verb, punched it for him. "'Come, you let me alone,' said the boy, parrying Quilp's hand with both his elbows alternatively. "'You'll get something you won't like if you don't, and so I tell you.' "'You dog!' snarled Quilp. "'I'll beat you with an iron rod. I'll scratch you with a rusty nail. I'll pinch your eyes. If you talk to me, I will.' With these threats he clenched his hand again, and dexterously diving in between the elbows and catching the boy's head as it dodged from side to side, gave it three or four good hard knocks. Having now carried his point and insisted on it, he left off. "'You won't do it again,' said the boy, nodding his head and drawing back, with the elbows ready in case of the worst. "'Now!' "'Stand still, you dog,' said Quilp. "'I won't do it again because I've done it as often as I want.' "'Here, take the key.' "'Why don't you hit one of your size?' said the boy, approaching very slowly. "'Where is there one of my size, you dog?' returned Quilp. "'Take the key, or I'll brain you with it.' Indeed, he gave him a smart tap with the handle as he spoke. "'Now open the counting-house.' The boy sulkily complied, muttering at first, but desisting when he looked round and saw that Quilp was following him with a steady look. And here it may be remarked that between this boy and the dwarf there existed a strange kind of mutual liking. How born or bred, and or nourished upon blows and threats on one side, and retorts and defiances on the other, is not to the purpose. Quilp would certainly suffer nobody to contract him but the boy, 
and the boy would assuredly not have submitted to be so knocked about by anybody but Quilp, when he had the power to run away at any time he chose. Now, said Quilp, passing into the wooden counting-house, you mind the wolf. Stand upon your head again, and I'll cut one of your feet off. The boy made no answer, but directly Quilp had shut himself in, stood on his head before the door, then walked on his hands to the back and stood on his head there, and then to the opposite side, and repeated the performance. There were indeed four sides to the counting-house, but he avoided that one where the window was, deeming it probable that Quilp would be looking out of it. This was prudent, for in point of fact the dwarf, knowing his disposition, was lying in wait at a little distance from the sash armed with a large piece of wood, which, being rough and jagged, and studded in many parts with broken nails, might possibly have hurt him. It was a dirty little box, this counting-house, with nothing in it but an old rickety desk and two stools, a hat-peg, an ancient almanac, an inkstand with no ink, and the stump of one pen, and an eight-day clock which hadn't gone for eighteen years at least, and of which the minute hand had been twisted off for a toothpick. Daniel Quilp pulled his hat over his brows, climbed onto the desk which had a flat top, and stretching his short length upon it, went to sleep with ease of an old practitioner, intending no doubt to compensate himself for the deprivation of last night's rest by a long and sound nap. Sound it might have been, but long it was not, for he had not been asleep a quarter of an hour, when the boy opened the door and thrust in his head, which was like a bundle of badly picked oakum. Quilp was a light sleeper and started up directly. "'Here's somebody for you,' said the boy. "'Who?' "'I don't know.' "'Ask,' said Quilp, seizing the trifle of wood before mentioned and throwing it at him with such dexterity that it was well the boy disappeared before it reached the spot on which he had stood. "'Ask, you dog!' Not caring to venture within range of such missiles again, the boy discreetly sent in his stead the first cause of the interruption, who now presented herself at the door. "'What, Nelly?' cried Quilp. "'Yes,' said the child, hesitating whether to enter or retreat, for the dwarf just roused, with his dishevelled hair hanging all about him, and a yellow handkerchief over his head, was something fearful to behold. "'It's only me, sir.' "'Come in,' said Quilp, without getting off the desk. "'Come in. Stay. Just look out into the yard, and see whether there's a boy standing on his head.' "'No, sir,' replied Nell. "'He's on his feet.' "'You're sure he is?' said Quilp. "'Well, now come in and shut the door. What's your message, Nellie?' The child handed him a letter. Mr. Quilp, without changing his position further than to turn over a little more on his side and rest his chin on his hand, proceeded to make himself acquainted with its contents. End of chapter 5